Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. This is a special episode because I actually went to Munich to hunt down Peter Adamson, uh, who's a professor at the LMU in Munich and also, of course, the host of the History of Philosophy podcast Without Any Gaps, who we've mentioned a couple of times. So welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks for having me here in your office. Oh, thanks. It's great to be on the History of Alchemy. Yeah, so uh, today we wanted to go over Neoplatonism because we've mentioned it a lot on the show. It seems like almost every episode. And I thought, uh, who better to ask about it than you? So to get things started, I, I think... Um, for our listeners that don't know, maybe we can kind of talk about Platonism first and talk about um, what Platonism was and then maybe talk about the differences. Right. So obviously Platonism could just refer to the ideas and doctrines, if there were any doctrines, of Plato, who's one mm -hmm. of the great philosophers of all time and who lived numerous centuries before the Neoplatonists because Neoplatonism doesn't get started until the third century AD. Right. And actually... What we have from Plato isn't a body of treatises with doctrines, such as we have from, say, Aristotle or, in fact, from most of the Neoplatonists. We have dialogues. Mm -hmm. And famously, in most of these dialogues, you have Socrates interacting right. with other characters, mm -hmm. and they're arguing about various things like how to define one of the virtues or what is justice, things mm -hmm. like that. And the Neoplatonist thought, and some people still think today, that you can go into the dialogues and extract philosophical positions. Mm -hmm. This is more plausible with respect to some dialogues than others. So with some of the earlier dialogues, the things Plato wrote towards the beginning of his career, which are sometimes called Socratic dialogues, they're much more open-ended. There's no resolution. The characters sort of try to define courage or something, mm -hmm. make several attempts, and then they fail and agree that it would be good to go on looking you don't really get the sense that you're being told what the answer is. Right. Whereas in a dialogue like The Republic, which is Plato's masterpiece, they're talking about justice and why it's better to be just than unjust. And Socrates puts forward a lot of very confident theories. So the Neoplatonists are most attracted to the dialogues of Plato, in which Plato seems, in fact, to be putting forward... Uh, more ambitious philosophical theories. Mm -hmm. And within that, they were attracted especially to some dialogues that are not read as frequently today. So if you go to university and study Plato as an undergraduate philosophy student, for example, you probably would study some of the Socratic dialogues. You'd probably read The Republic and so on, probably read the Mino, the Phaedo. Mm -hmm. And these were certainly read by the Neoplatonists and even wrote commentaries on them. But there were some other uh, dialogues that they really loved. One that's very difficult to understand called the Parmenides, okay, which is yeah. this very abstract kind of logical exercise about mm -hmm. the nature of unity and being. There's uh, another one called the Timaeus, mm -hmm. which is probably the most important Platonic dialogue for alchemy, because okay. that's yeah. the one where Plato 
talks about the universe having been created by a demiurge or mm-hmm. divine craftsman. And he also gives a theory about the four elements and how they're constructed. And as maybe I can say later, that it turns out to be a kind of atomism forward there. So in a way, he gives you the physical basis for understanding how alchemy could work. Most of the Neoplatonists are not alchemists. Right. Yep. But Neoplatonism, as you've said in a lot of your shows, is very influential on alchemy. And the alchemists are often referring to the kind of metaphysical picture right. that you yep. get in Neoplatonism. And the Neoplatonists, in turn, were extracting that metaphysical picture from mm-hmm. Platonism. So the things that we most of all associate with Plato's metaphysics would be the most obvious thing, the theory of forms. So the theory of forms is actually not nearly as prominent in the dialogues as you might think. Okay. So I think before people read Plato, they think, oh, he's going to be kind of talking about the forms all over the place. Mm-hmm. And actually, it turns out that although there are passages where he talks about forms, he very rarely makes any attempt to tell you what they are. Mm-hmm. Okay. He, he very rarely tries to convince you that there are such things. Mm-hmm. Rather, they usually come in as a kind of hypothesis for answering some other philosophical question. So he might be trying to explain how words get their meaning. Mm -hmm. He might be trying to explain what the basis of ethics is. He might be trying to explain how knowledge is possible. And then he'll refer to these forms without actually explaining to you what they are. Okay, yeah. And interestingly, one of the clearest passages for understanding what the forms are comes in the beginning of this dialogue, the Parmenides, that I mentioned. And what happens there is that he has a young Socrates meeting an old Parmenides, the great pre-Socratic philosopher. And he has Parmenides attack the theory of forms and refute it. And along the way, he has Socrates say what he thinks the forms are, these abstract paradigms. So the idea is that if something is large, then like an elephant, say, it becomes large by participating or being a, a similitude of the form of large. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one thing, the theory of forms. Other things include the immortality of the soul, the fact that the universe is well-designed, possibly by this divine craftsman that we find in the Timaeus, Um, and more generally, a kind of view according to which the things that are more real and more central in philosophy and more the objects of our knowledge tend to be things that are not material and bodily, Mm-hmm. but rather immaterial, transcendent things, i.e. forms, gods, mm-hmm. like the Demiurge, and the soul. And that is what the Neoplatonists are going to pick up and run with. Yeah, okay. And so how did... Cause, so first of all, I guess Neoplatonists would have just called themselves Platonists. Absolutely, but, yeah. So what are what are some of the other differences that that... Maybe they, like, what did they add to Neoplatonism that is not in the original, that, that Plato had nothing to do with? Yeah, well, I think it's actually worth emphasizing what you just said, which yeah. is that they thought of themselves as just Platonists mm-hmm. who were offering a kind of exegesis of the doctrines of Plato mm-hmm. in the way I described. So they're sort of pulling out the doctrines and uh, formulating a systematic theory mm-hmm. on the basis of some dialogues. And in fact, even within their favorite dialogues, there are some passages they really like. Uh-huh, okay, yeah. So um, the phrase Neoplatonism comes only in the last couple of centuries, right. so in modern scholarship. And it was originally kind of an insult. So uh-huh. the idea is there was like the old Platonists, who are mm-hmm. Plato and his immediate followers, 
And there's the so-called Middle Platonists, mm-hmm. who are people who come along around the early Roman Empire. And they're very influenced by Pythagoreanism. But they start having this metaphysical interpretation of Plato. And then the Neoplatonists carry that on. Uh, In fact, nowadays, there are even some scholars who don't want to use the word Neoplatonism anymore Mm because they think it's pejorative. Okay. I kind of think we're stuck with it, so we should keep using it. But the other thing that I think now would be very widely recognized is that Plotinus, who's considered to be the first Neoplatonist, is not just coming out of nowhere doing something that no one has thought to do with Plato before, i.e., have this highly metaphysical and also ethically loaded and doctrinal reading Mm -hmm. of Plato. Rather, he's, in a way, just the next in a long line of Platonists who begin right with Plato's students and immediate successors, Josephus and Xenocrates. And then you can go all the way up to these middle Platonists. Um, And for a while, the Platonic Academy went skeptical, and so they Mm -hmm. don't have this doctrinal reading of Plato. But then with the Middle Platonists and Plotinus, you get more and more this uh, temptation to read, Plata- read Plato as a doctrinal philosopher and also to combine Plato with other philosophical movements like Stoicism and Aristotelianism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one way of thinking about Plotinus is that he's just the most influential and successful of a line of Platonists who are weaving other philosophical ideas into the dialogues of Plato and reading Plato in a doctrinal way and putting a lot of emphasis on certain ideas, namely the ones I just mentioned. So Mm -hmm. the importance of transcendent metaphysical entities, the importance of being systematic, um, and maybe the most important thing of all, the derivation of all things from a completely unified first principle. And that's maybe the thing that's most distinctive about Neoplatonism. If you were going to put your finger on just one thing, like what's new about Neoplatonism. It's not the immortality of the soul, because that's been in Platonism yeah. right along. It's not the forms that's mm-hmm. been in Neoplatonism all along. And there were even Jewish Platonists like mm-hmm. Milo of Alexandria who thought there yep. were forms that are ideas in the mind of God, right? Mm-hmm. I, I remember that from your podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's the two podcasts sort of uh-huh. influencing one, each yeah. other, one another. So... Um, what I think if you were going to say, I mean, there's lots of things that are distinctive about the Neoplatonists in general and Plotinus in particular, but maybe the thing that is more distinctive than anything else is the idea of a supreme, ineffable first principle. And the way is prepared for that by earlier Platonists, but Plotinus really explores that and develops this very distinctive hierarchical system mm-hmm. with right. the one at mm-hmm. the top. Yep. Okay. And and is that, would it be wrong to say that Neoplatonism is is trying to i mean you you kind of mentioned that it's kind of it's trying to make aristotle fit with plato is that fair to say i mean how does how does aristotle fit in with neoplatonism yeah well in a way that's a little bit controversial actually so um plotinus had a student named porphyry Mm -hmm. and porphyry edited the works of plotinus so when we read plotinus we read this set of his treatises called the enneads which means nines porphyry basically did an edition of plotinus's works in which he grouped them into sets of nine, six sets of nine treatises, hence mm-hmm. the Enneads. And he wrote a work called The Life of Plotinus, mm-hmm. in which he talks about what kind of guy Plotinus was and tells some interesting anecdotes about him. And he says it's various things about Plotinus's works. And one of the things he says is that if you look at Aristotle, you'll find all of Aristotle's teachings kind of scattered through Plotinus. Okay, yeah. So that's basically right. Uh, 
in the sense that Plotinus uses a lot of Aristotle's ideas. So just one example would be that at the top of Plotinus's system, you have this supreme, ineffable, totally unified principle, the one. Mm-hmm. And the thing that comes after that is uh, an intellect, mm-hmm. which is thinking about all the forms. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like Philo of Alexandria's God, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got yeah. this divine intellect, which is grasping the forms. Mm-hmm. And for Plotinus, who's not reacting to Philo, Plotinus is thinking of that, at least to some extent, as Aristotle's God. Mm-hmm. So Aristotle's God is a self-thinking intellect. Plotinus's intellect mm-hmm. is doing very much the same thing. It's thinking about its own thought, which yeah. turns out to be all the forms, mm-hmm. the Platonic forms. But within that, there's a critique of Aristotle, right? Because he's saying, well, yes, you're right that there is this divine intellect, which somehow gives rise to the rest of the universe and makes it move in an orderly fashion. Mm-hmm. He agrees with Aristotle about all that. He agrees that this divine intellect is thinking about its own thoughts, mm-hmm. but he denies that it's the first principle. And the reason he gives is that the first principle should be something that's completely one mm-hmm. because unity is what makes everything the thing that it is, like you're mm-hmm. one human. And so there's a principle of unity in you that makes you what you are. And it, you could sort of think about it as like a super platonic form. Mm-hmm. It's the form that gives everything else the possibility of existing by giving it unity. And he says, well, if you had this kind of super form, which was a pure unity, that can't be an intellect because an intellect is multiple. Right? Mm-hmm. It has many ideas. Okay, and yeah. even if you didn't worry about the fact that it has many ideas, uh, he has a very interesting point, which is that if this intellect is thinking about itself, then it must have a kind of duality because it's both the thing that's thinking and it's the thing that's being thought mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. So even though it's one thing thinking about itself, it's still two. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that thinks and the thing that is thought. So he denies that this intellect could be the first principle. And that's very characteristic. So what what they tend to do, the Neoplatonists with Aristotle, is they tend to accept some of his ideas and then say that these ideas don't go far enough in a Platonist direction. Mm-hmm. And in fact, what you see happening in the rest of antiquity, and this is not so relevant to alchemy, but it's worth touching on briefly, yeah. is that the Platonists effectively think of Aristotle as kind of introductory level philosophy, especially Mm -hmm. Aristotle's logic. Mm -hmm. So if you turn up in a philosophy class in Alexandria in the 5th century, say, what will happen is you'll have a Platonist professor, and the professor will start you off on Aristotle's logic and natural philosophy. Mm -hmm. And then if you kind of stick around to do your doctorate, you'll graduate to working on Plato. So they think of Aristotle as a kind, as definitely a great philosopher, and as in some ways an inspired divine philosopher, although not as mm-hmm. inspired as okay. Plato. Yeah. But they think that Aristotle doesn't look as high as Plato mm-hmm. in some ways, or at least that he his philosophy isn't relevant to the highest principles. So he just mm-hmm. they just think that he doesn't have very much to say about, for example, the realm of intellect. Rather, yeah. he's concentrating more on logic and physics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I remember in your podcast, you, you mentioned that you, you basically mentioned that, that they would start with Aristotle's logic or something. And then and so you, you pointed out that so you could have a pagan teacher and then some of the students might be Christian because mm-hmm. they start with just something that's more kind of neutral right. and start with, you know, philosophy in general or I mean, with Aristotle. And then and then when they start moving up, then they start thinking about 
higher beings and, and this kind of thing. So is it is it also fair to say that Neoplatonists that their their idea of the one and all the gods that are below them that it got more complicated over time as they kind of thought about how that works or or the nature of gods yes. and that kind of thing the listener can't see that i'm nodding but i'm <laughs> nodding right so uh yeah so a, a good contrast here and this is to some extent a cliche but it's it's close enough to being right is that uh you have plotinus mm-hmm. who has a relatively simple version of neoplatonism so mm-hmm. his system you have this ineffable one at the top then you have the noose or intellect which is identical with the realm of forms which are the things it's thinking about mm-hmm. then you have the soul yeah which is the level of both our soul and the soul of the entire universe mm-hmm. is that the noose or is that something else no noose is intellect okay yep and All right. soul is psuche which, uh-huh. which okay. is where we get the word psychology Psych, yeah. right and then the soul is responsible for bringing form into matter mm-hmm. so you've effectively got the one at the top then noose or intellect then soul okay. then yeah the material world with shape and form being given to it mm-hmm. by the soul taking the ideas from noose and mm-hmm. putting it into matter. Okay. So okay. that's quite simple. I mean, well, you might think it's quite weird, but it's not complicated, mm-hmm. right? Sure. You've only got four levels. If mm-hmm. you then go ahead uh, several generations, you get to Proclus, mm-hmm. who's really notorious for having a very complicated version of the same system. Mm-hmm. And this is a bit of a long story, but basically what he does is he generates a lot more levels mm-hmm. within the system by invoking various laws of causation. So maybe the most important is that between any two principles, you will have a mean principle, sort of like between two numbers, like mm-hmm. between four and six, there'd be five. Mm-hmm. He, so wherever he thinks there's room for another principle, where there could be a kind of compromise between mm-hmm. the two principles... There will be that. So, for example, between intellect and soul, mm-hmm. you'd have intellective souls. Uh-huh. That's a okay. sim- simple yeah. example. And he also thinks that every level of the hierarchy will have a, its own supreme principle, which creates a series of beings or entities. Mm-hmm. And that starts already with the one. So the one is, as in Plotinus, this completely supreme, ineffable principle mm-hmm. And it generates not just the intellect, but also a whole range of unities, which he calls henads. And these can be identified with the gods mm-hmm. of okay. pagan yeah. religion. Mm-hmm. So th- this way of uh, changing the Neoplatonic system, which actually goes back to an earlier thinker named Iamblichus, who's a little bit less famous, but um, maybe important for you because he has all these ideas about theurgy. One way of thinking about what Iamblichus and then later Proclus are doing is that they're making the system complicated enough to accommodate pagan religion. Mm-hmm, right. So yeah. whereas in Plotinus, if you ask Plotinus, well, what's Zeus? He'll say, oh, well, it's just my intellect. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you ask Proclus, well, who's Hera or who's Poseidon? Mm-hmm. He can point to some particular element of his system. He can also explain to you what the names of the gods mean and how they're kind of... Uh, exposition of the underlying metaphysics so he has a metaphysical picture which is supposed to be a kind of rational demonstration of the truth represented by pagan religion one way of explaining this development is that 
whereas Plotinus is writing in the third century when the empire is still pagan mm -hmm. and the pagans are pretty confident in their religious beliefs. Proclus is writing at a time when the empire has been taken over by Christianity, right? Mm -hmm. It's after Constantine. And in fact, at, the, at his time, the pagans are really on the run mm -hmm. and are in some ways being oppressed mm -hmm. by the Christians. And he's effectively turning around to his society and saying, oh, you know, these religious traditions and beliefs that you just spent a couple of centuries overturning and now violently persecuting, I will use reason to show mm -hmm. you that they're actually true. Yep. So that was a big mistake and we need to go back to the old ways. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, in a way, it's a kind of uh, technical, highly professionalized philosophical version mm -hmm. of the kind of thing that Augustine is responding to in the City of God. So Augustine mentions that there were these pagans who said that the reason Rome was sacked was because they gave up on the old gods. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Proclus is saying, he's saying the reason that you have all these false metaphysical beliefs is that you gave up on the true gods of our mm -hmm. fathers and forefathers. That's interesting, yeah. So Peter, to, to kind of bring it a step closer to alchemy, let's say, um, is there any kind of mystical aspects you can talk about with Neoplatonism? You know, if you know what I mean, how, how would you say, is it, a, is it a mystical religion or is it a mystical thought? Well, so I think actually this is one reason people connect alchemy to mm -hmm. Neoplatonism, both in the popular imagination and also historically, there are these connections. And in fact, there's a, to the extent that there's a kind of man on the street view of Neoplatonism, it's that it's this kind of mystical yeah. tradition. And what I would say is that although there is a kind of place where mysticism comes in, in Platonism, in general, it's very not mystical. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of surprising thing to say about Neoplatonism, so okay. I should explain yeah. it. Yeah. So if you think about what both Proclus and Plotinus were doing, what they wanted to say is that you can extract a rational system from the teachings of Plato, mm -hmm. maybe informed by Aristotle and the Stoics, mm -hmm. and that that system, in a sense, um, culminates not with this first principle, the one, but with nous, mm -hmm. the okay. intellect, yeah. because that's the world of forms. And they would say that although intellect doesn't think discursively or use language mm -hmm. the way that we do as souls, yeah. for them, intellect epitomizes what rationality is. So they will compare it, for example, to a mathematical system. Mm -hmm. they they're very Pythagorean. Yep, right. So they'll compare it to the system of numbers, but also uh, Plotinus, when he talks about the contents of noose, he does things like comparing it to a theorem and then all of the things that that kind of derive from it in mathematics mm -hmm. or an axiom and the mm -hmm. derivatives of the axiom. So uh, there's a kind of, I think, a fundamental uh, misunderstanding about Neoplatonism, which is that they think the point of philosophy is to be mystical and to go beyond what can be thought about. Mm -hmm. They think, in general, that the point of philosophy, at least in the first instance, is to understand the realm of intellect, mm -hmm. which for them is the most kind of rational thing there is. Okay, so it's yeah. it's characterized by order, by definition, by interrelations between forms and so on. Mm -hmm. And then they want to say that that realm of rationality and form is a unity because mm -hmm. it's one intellect thinking about itself. Okay, mm -hmm. but then after that, so that in a way that that's sort of what philosophy is mm -hmm. for them, and they think that that also has a lot of ethical implications because they yeah. think that the re that most people are making a mistake by 
focusing on the body when they should be focusing on this project mm -hmm. of understanding the rational contents mm -hmm. of intellect with their souls. Okay, so that's basically what they think you should do. And Proclus has different views than Plotinus about the contents of that, right? Because he thinks that these are all gods and that there mm -hmm. are many levels of gods within the realm of intellect. But it's the same basic project. Mm -hmm. However, there is then this sort of extra thing you can do, which is to go beyond intellect and seek some kind of unity with the one. Mm -hmm. And there's a strong tendency in Neoplatonism to think that in a sense that's going beyond what philosophy is. So Iamblichus, for example, when he talks about uh, using theurgy, which is something mm -hmm. we can talk about in a second, to contact the gods, he thinks of that as going beyond kind of standard rational philosophy because precisely because it's, it's like one-on-one -on -one contact with the gods. It's not something that can be achieved through demonstrations or rationality. Mm -hmm. And so even in Plotinus, who's a much more, as it were, rationalist thinker than Iamblichus or Proclus, for him, this, I, this project of seeking unification with the one is definitely the highest goal we can mm -hmm. pursue, pursue. But it's not like that's what he's always talking about in okay. his writings. Yeah. It's, it's something that comes up very occasionally. And it's something that's hard to talk about. So the one is this ineffable principle that you can't really grasp with your mind. You can't grasp mm -hmm. with speech. And so when he talks about it, at one point he says that the only way to get to it would be to take away everything, mm -hmm. as he says. And that is a mystical idea, obviously. Mm -hmm. And because of this aspect of Neoplatonism, Neoplatonism was very influential on the mystical tradition. So you see Neoplatonism having an influence on Islamic mystics mm -hmm. like the Sufis, a Jewish mysticism like Kabbalah, mm -hmm. uh, and Christian mysticism such as you find later in the Renaissance and so on. Um, yeah. But it's, I would deny that it's fundamentally a, a mystical kind of philosophy. It's a rationalist mm -hmm. kind of philosophy that then has a kind of mystical moment, as it were, on top. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I keep coming across, um, especially when with, with Neoplatonic alchemists, um, there's, there's uh, in the alchemical lab you have something called an incubator, and it's where they would have their mixture and it would take months to ferment or, or mm -hmm. whatever it does, cook. And especially in a Neoplatonist concept, they would say this is like the most, I don't know, sacred part of the lab. And some alchemists believe that it would only be successful if you kind of would contemplate God over the incubator or kind of like meditate, but not in an Eastern sense, but just kind of, I don't even know how they mean it, you know, sit there and contemplate God, you know, try to be closer to God or something. Or and pray, this, maybe. Maybe pray, yeah. yeah. And and uh, it's always in a Neoplatonic concept, and I'm never quite sure what they mean, but I guess mm -hmm. you'd sit there and, yeah, maybe pray, contemplate the, the nature of of the divine i'm not right. I'm not sure what that would mean so i would connect that to theurgy which yeah mentioned okay a couple of times yeah so what is theurgy well it, the actual word means god making or making god right? okay so theos yeah. means god um and uh the the idea is that a theurgic ritual or object like an mm -hmm. amulet yeah or maybe an alchemical compound, yep. although that's not usually what we think of when we think of theurgy. We think more of That's, that's like, what I think of. Yeah. That's, you, that's what, maybe what <laughs> listeners of this podcast think of. But, yeah. but we, when Iamblichus, for example, who's sort of the great Neoplatonist theur, theurgist or theorist mm -hmm. of theurgy, he thinks about it more in terms of like magical words 
magical sure. items like amulets yeah. mm-hmm. or um, maybe symbols, numbers, uh, stones with things inscribed on them, statues. So there mm-hmm. was this tradition of animating statues. Right. Like the, yeah. the goddess would start to talk yeah. or light on fire or something. So that's theurgy. Mm-hmm. And this was actually controversial within Neoplatonism. Plotinus's student Porphyry mm-hmm. wrote a work in which he asked a lot of skeptical questions about these practices and suggested mm-hmm. that probably they wouldn't work and mm-hmm. that in some cases they were very inappropriate because you know they would do things like sh- uh, shouting obscenities mm-hmm. as a way of invoking the gods and Porphyry would say, okay, what, what, are you, yeah. what are you doing? So huh. this is kind of the rationalist wing. Mm-hmm. He's a student of Plotinus, right? So Plotinus and Porphyry stand for this rationalization of pagan religion, where pagan religion is being assimilated to the simpler version of Platonism they put forward in their works. Mm-hmm. And Iamblichus wrote a response to Porphyry's questions in which he defends the possibility of theurgy. So what he's saying is that because the soul doesn't have the ability to rise above its own level within the Neoplatonic mm-hmm. system, since the gods are all up above the soul, they're in the realm of the intellect or even in the mm-hmm. Hanatic realm around the one, the only way to get access to the gods, as it were, would be to ask the gods to come to us. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of like, you know, Muhammad's not going to the mountain, the right. mountain's coming yep. to Muhammad, right? And so the question is, how would you do that? And the answer is you use some kind of appropriate symbols. And the symbols mm-hmm. will be things like special words or special diagrams or mm-hmm. whatever. And so I think one way of thinking about the connection between Neoplatonism and alchemy, although this is kind of an impressionistic suggestion more than something that I'm where I have a particular text in mind, is that the alchemist is trying to do something in the physical realm that will allow the divine immaterial Mm -hmm. principle to manifest itself. Mm -hmm. And I think here it's important to remember that the Neoplatonists think anyway that the physical universe is completely suffused with divinity. Mm -hmm. So everything gets its character from the forms, which are Mm -hmm. up in the divine noose. And in general, it's not like God is not there. Mm -hmm. It's more like we aren't seeing God or we're not seeing Mm -hmm. God's effects as clearly as we might. So when you do something theurgic... And that could include prayer, by the way. Mm-hmm. When you do something theurgic, you are allowing the divine to make itself more manifest than it usually is. So you could think about it as an alternative to what Plotinus and Porphyry were suggesting. So their idea was, well, we use rationalist philosophy to kind of raise our souls to the level of noose mm-hmm. and see the contents, i.e. the Platonic forms. It's still yep. all grounded in Plato, right? Mm-hmm. In Iamblichus and then Proclus... The idea is, well, we're stuck at the level of soul, so we can use language to kind of unfold the contents of noose. But if we want a more intimate connection with the divine, we have to do something else. We have to do theurgy. Mm-hmm. And I would associate alchemy more with the theurgic end of yep. Neoplatonism than the, Makes sense. Yeah. The, the kind of discursive end that mm-hmm. you find in Plotinus and Porphyry. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I wondered if, um, like the whole idea of the, of the Philosopher's Stone... Because it's often, um, by by the early modern period, it's often described as um, gold that's purer than gold. And I've kind of wondered, does that, does that go back to a Neoplatonic sense that it's like it's closer to the form of gold? Or is that just... Yeah, or maybe maybe one way to think about that, which would be very Platonist in general, not just Neoplatonist, mm-hmm. is that the thing that is most 
the sort of thing that it is, is the cause of other things being like that. Mm -hmm. So to put that less abstractly, the cause of largeness is the form of large, Mm -hmm. which is just the large itself. Yeah. Right. So one way of thinking about the philosopher's stone might be, well, it's the sort of essence of gold. Yeah. Physically realized now instead of Mm -hmm. being a form. But that just means it's the thing that can turn other things gold. Yeah. Right. That's a very Platonist thought. Okay. That's interesting. Right? Yeah. Because okay. Because yeah. they, they tend to link the idea of the core essence of something with the cause of other things sharing mm-hmm. its properties. So even the soul, for example, mm-hmm. is alive and gives life to the body. Mm-hmm. So there's, in general, they'll say, well, you know, the, the paradigmatic case of X will be the cause of other things being X. That's, mm-hmm. in a way, the most platonic thought there is yeah okay and so in, in a way that what you just said about the philosopher's stone could be an illustration of that mm-hmm. that's that's guess, interesting but... yeah i've been meaning to ask you that that's that's great yeah. <laughs> while i still have you here is there anything else that you could say that has a connection between alchemy and neoplatonism in general or yeah so one thing is that um there are actually some authors who are considered to be neoplatonists and alchemists yep. um, actually the best example is someone named stephanus of alexandria who's mm-hmm. one of these people I mentioned earlier who's commenting on Aristotle and so on. Mm-hmm. And there is a Stephen or Stephanus who's an alchemist. Mm-hmm. So there's a debate about whether they're the same guy. Because oh, as okay. you can imagine, Stephen is a pretty Because I have him on my list, but I haven't done my reading on him yet. So. Well, one of the things you have uh-huh. to decide, I guess, is whether he gets one episode or two, mm-hmm. <laughs> depending on how many people he is. Yeah. Okay, so there, there's that. But I think maybe more important for the general tradition is what neoplatonists would say about the physical possibility or realization of alchemy Mm -hmm. and here we need to go back to the timaeus so i mentioned that in the timaeus plato is giving some kind of account of the way the natural world is generated by divine principles Mm -hmm. and one of the things he says which should be more famous than it is is that the four elements are constructed out of mathematical shapes Namely, okay. triangles. Aha, uh-huh. all right. And he says the, huh. he, the, the triangles that he selects, he says, are the, the best figures he can find because mm-hmm. they're the most beautiful. Mm-hmm. But then he says if someone comes up with a better version of this theory, he will consider them a friend and not a, an opponent. Uh-huh. Okay. okay. Yeah. So the idea is that you have huh. these triangles that come together to form the faces of geometrical solids, mm-hmm. i.e. pyramids, yep. cubes, and mm-hmm. so on which is why we call those the Platonic Solids, because they're all from the Timaeus. And then they come together, and you can turn one elemental molecule into another by breaking it into triangular atoms. So, for example, if you have... Suppose that you had a a pyramid, which is the core shape of fire. Mm -hmm. Fire is really just a lot of pyramids rushing around. And he even, for example, he explains that the reason fire burns and breaks things up is that they're sharp. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Makes sense. Taken yeah. very literally. And, and then another oh. uh, another elemental molecule might be an octahedron, for example. Mm-hmm. And you can get an octahedron out of a pyramid by splitting the pyramids up mm-hmm. and then reconfiguring the triangles. Yep. So that suggests that you can turn any element into any other element. On the other hand, he gives an account of earth one mm-hmm. of the four elements by saying that it's a cube and if you think about a pyramid and a cube and do the geometry it turns out that you can't make cubes out of the same triangles mm-hmm. that you make pyramids out of mm-hmm. so you have to use equilateral triangles mm-hmm. instead of three four five triangles yeah so um the 
the pyramids are made of triangles that are basically the left or, or right half of an equilateral triangle. Mm-hmm. And sorry, I think I said Earth is made of equilateral triangles. Earth is made of isosceles triangles, so okay. half, half yep. of a square. Yep. Okay. So what that means, Plato says, is that you cannot turn Earth into the other three elements, mm-hmm. but you can turn air, fire, and water into one another. Okay, right? interesting. And then yeah. Aristotle criticized that and said that you can turn all four elements into one another. And he mm-hmm. has a completely different theory of the elements. Mm-hmm. So the Neoplatonists then have the opportunity to talk about what we would think of as chemistry in terms of either this geometrical atomism that you find in uh, Plato mm-hmm. or in terms of the kind of chemistry you find in Aristotle where, at least on their interpretation, the elements are prime matter, which is pure potential mm-hmm. without any form. Okay, yeah. Plus the forms of uh, air, fire, and water, which means that they have the uh, four qualities of hot, mm-hmm. cold, dry, and moist. Yep. Right? So I'm sure you... you yeah, I, mean, yeah, I know yeah. you've talked about this a lot in your series. So effectively, you've got two completely different models mm-hmm. for explaining chemistry. And these then, I think, in some ways become the two options for later alchemists. So they can either think about alchemy in the Aristotelian paradigm, which is to think about prime matter receiving qualities, Mm -hmm. hotness, coldness, Mm -hmm. moisture, dryness. Or you can think about chemistry mathematically. So Mm -hmm. you can think, well, if I break things all the way down, what I'll get at the bottom won't be some qualities residing in bare matter. What I'll get is basically space that's been shaped in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Right? And, of course, Mm -hmm. turns out Plato's right. (laughs) In mm-hmm. some sense, like uh, chemistry is mathematics. It's not yeah. qualities, yeah. as we now know, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but obviously the dominant uh, chemical theory throughout the Middle Ages and Renaissance was Aristotelian. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, therefore, to see that the Neoplatonists, because they're so keen on Plato, they actually rise to the defense of the geometrical atomism. So mm-hmm. you have commentaries where they look at... Aristotle's critique of Plato mm-hmm. and say, oh, well, his criticisms of Plato's atomic theory are based on misconceptions. And in fact, maybe he's not even criticizing it. Maybe he's just warning us not to misinterpret it, which is one mm-hmm. of their favorite ways yeah, of okay. harmonizing yeah. Plato and Aristotle. Uh-huh. So actually, um, I think that if you wanted to think about the way that chemistry underlies alchemy, in a sense, and of mm-hmm. course, in some ways, there's no difference between the two, right? I mean, we we differentiate alchemy and chemistry mm-hmm. in a way that they at least didn't have a terminological way of doing, right? So, I mean, alchemy is just the word chemistry with the Arabic definite article. Yeah, I, I mean, in the in the 17th, 18th century, it was kind of the same thing, yeah. but, but yeah, very different principles. No, so, no, right, absolutely. But, but, but what yeah. I mean, I guess what I mean is that there's a continuity between sure, the two yeah. disciplines. Mm-hmm. At, at a minimum, there's a continuity. And that means that understanding the kind of Platonic and Aristotelian and then Neoplatonic mm-hmm. theory of chemistry is really important if you want to understand what alchemists, or maybe guess, since they usually don't say, mm-hmm. if you want yeah, to guess right. what the yeah. alchemists might think is actually happening at the micro level when you, for mm-hmm. example, turn lead into gold. That's interesting, yeah. All right. Um, well, thank you very much for talking about Neoplatonism. I think you've, you've answered some of my questions that I personally had, and I hope uh, it was really interesting for all the listeners. Um, if you'd like to hear more from Peter Adamson, he has a podcast called, which I highly recommend, by the way, and have many times before, The History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. 
And thank you again very much for coming. Thanks. It was great to be on. Um, we will have Peter back for another show on about Al-Razi and Al-Farabi. So if you want to hear him again, stick around. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.